another season of Unraveling Science, the podcast where I chat to leading scientific researchers about the stories that have not only shaped the science, but also the scientist. This season, we have so much to cover from dermatology to astronomy, nutrition to immunology, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted again to be sponsored by the wonderful Irish company, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of the Thermo Fisher Scientific Group, and you can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. I'm so grateful to them for continuing to sponsor this podcast. Dr. Kieran Mead, Associate Professor in the UCD School of Agriculture and Food Science and Senior Conway Fellow, is my guest on the podcast today. So Kieran's animal science research focuses on host immunity, fertility and the factors that contribute to disease susceptibility, including infectious diseases such as TB. Kieran has been awarded prestigious funding from SFI and awards such as the Animal Health All-Star Award in 2019 and the Chaga Staff Award in 2018, to name but a few. And so with that in mind, Kieran, and, you know, I think maybe some people on the podcast know that I grew up on a farm. So this is going to be um, an interesting experience for me, perhaps, as well as you. But uh, I'm really excited to chat to you today. So thank you so much for coming on Unraveling Science. Yeah, great, Megan. So thanks a million for the opportunity. Um, I'm following in the footsteps of some really interesting people. And uh, I'm delighted that you're you're coming from a farming background because uh, I love talking cows. So I'm happy to do it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, as I said to you earlier, you know, um, any of my family who would listen to this will know that I'm not the best farmer in the household. But, you know, I do, you know, I I, I grew up at a farm, so maybe I have some sort of um, affinity towards them. So, yeah, I'm interested to learn more. Um, but I suppose, you know, I, I want to kind of go back and, and talk about, you know, what you were like growing up. Did you always have this love for, I suppose, like animal science and, and animals or did that come a little later on? Yeah, I think in preparation for, for the chat today, I was thinking back on where my love for, man, for animals came from. And it's kind of a weird story. I can't really put my finger on the very beginning as such. Um, so, but like I grew up in a, in a housing estate in inner city or on the, in the suburbs of Dublin um, in Shankill. And um, I just remember my parents were always super encouraging in terms of encouraging my interest in animals. And, you know, we had fish and then, I, for, I don't know, for my leaving cert or my junior cert or something, I remember my parents bought me a Cocker Spaniel and I was super interested in the genetics and registering the animal in the Irish Kennel Club and starting to breed dogs. And um, But my I suppose my passion really was, my dad is from the Glen of Aherlow in County Tipperary, which is like a super scenic part of the country. It's absolutely gorgeous down there. And so every opportunity I had, I was either on the on the bus down to Tipperary or was, uh, my pa- my mother has relations near um, Ockram and Galway. And if I wasn't going to Tip, I was going to Galway and I was just immersed in agriculture. And my my uncle in Galway used to, um, he gave me a yo, a yo. And, and when she had twins every year, he would keep the money from one of the lambs and then he would give me the money from the other lambs. I always had a real vested interest in in, in agriculture and in animals. And and I just remember, you know, that the, the, my, my dad's brother was farming at the foot of the Galti Mountains in Tipperary and it was just so scenic and the beautiful Holstein Frisian cattle. And then 
you know, his neighbor across the road had a herd of Jersey cattle. So I used to run down to, to, to the to the milking of the Holstein Frisians and then tear across the fields, Jersey cows. And the Jersey cows, I don't know if you've ever seen them, Megan, but they're little, kind of like Bambi almost, like big brown eyes and, and little, little small frames. And they're really docile and, and placid and just a complete contrast. And I just... I didn't realize it at the time, but I was just so passionate and loved like the different breeds. And then it got me thinking about genetics. And then really what I wanted to do as a kid was, was be a vet. And like, like a lot of animal science students, I think they want, we want to be vets originally because I mean, I was the first in my family to go to college. So I didn't really know what an animal scientist was like that, especially in the early stages. So, um, so I wanted to do veterinary medicine and then I repeated, I missed the points in my first leave insert and I repeated my leave insert and still missed it. So I, I went and did animal science then and, um, and it was looking originally as a kind of a backdoor into veterinary medicine, but, um, but then realized that I was just passionate about genetics and breeding and, and yeah, started off my, my career in agriculture, I suppose, from, from then on. Yeah, because actually the the degree that I did biomedical science, like a huge amount of people who were in that were people who wanted to do medicine and then didn't. And this is their kind of second option. I wasn't actually one of those people, but it, like I do understand that where you think or like, OK, I'll just do this and then suddenly find like a love for the degree. And I know that AGS and UCD have a reputation of being great cracks. So did you enjoy your time uh, in, in UCD? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've developed a core of friends and uh, that we still have to this day, you know, and, and colleagues. And actually, just it just so happens that a lot of my year are still kind of, um, you know, en- ended up in research and then they're in kind of prominent positions in Chagas and in UCD. So there's still a big cohort of us around, even in industry as well. So I regularly meet pe- people from my year. But yes, it was great crack. And there were some aspects of it that were um that were really valuable for me in terms of like the, the long period of work experience, you know, that because I, I always say to students, a huge part of life is working out what you don't want. You know, I had a, I had a student one stage working in my lab who, when I went into the lab, he was asleep on the bench. And I remember he woke up kind of frightened and he expected me to kind of chastise him and give out to him. And I was saying, look, you know, it's really important in life to work out that you're not into this just as much as, as it is to work out what you are into. So I wasn't annoyed at all. So I think that early exposure is so critical to, to shaping where you want to go because as I said I had really no clue what a research scientist was I remember at the end of my degree in animal science the head of my um, school was Professor Morris Boland and I, he was this like kind of scary big authority figure and I worked up the courage to go up and talk to him and I, I walked into his office and I said like I, I you know I want to be a lecturer I think and he said um, in what you know, and I said, I, I, I don't know. And he said, you know, you need to go away and, and develop expertise. And, you know, before you think about teaching it and whatever. And it was really great advice. It was terrifying, but really great advice. And he said to me, um, he said, I tell you what you do now. He said, there's a new professor here from Trinity who has just moved to, to UCD. And um, David McHugh is his name. So go and find him and talk to him. So I set off to try and find him. And I said to him, do you know where he's based? And he said, just follow the smell of freshly brewed coffee because David brought, he used to make his own coffee in his office and it was this really potent smell of coffee. And we did find him and uh, and we got chatting and then David offered me a, a master's which turned into a PhD. And um, and, and yeah, my, my kind of career went from there, I suppose. Um, no, because I was going to ask you, because I saw, because um, actually when I went to like, you know, look you up and research you, your website is fantastic I could not get over the amount of like detail and just the explanation of like 
why your research has an impact, like breaking it down. But one of the things I did read was like, um, I don't know, was it in your final year or, or at the start of your PhD that you worked with this famous bull who has like 100,000 children? <laughs> so maybe explain yeah. that. <laughs> yes, calves, Megan, calves. Children, not children. See, there but you yes. go. I'm, I'm letting myself down already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was, that was genuinely really interesting because... Um, because like I got to do some really cool stuff. Like my work experience was working in an artificial insemination center. And like, I remember like my Dublin friends or whatever, hadn't a clue that this kind of stuff even existed, you know? And genuinely one of my jobs was to sit inside a mechanical cow while the bull mounted the mechanical cow. And I would have a pre-warmed like artificial vagina to collect samples. And I mean, it, that sounds really strange to people not from a farming background, but, but that is the that is the the cornerstone of our breeding industry because we have to collect you know samples from genetically elite animals and then spread that um, germplasm or DNA through the rest of the herd. So I I, I thought that was I remember going that was outside in Mallow in County Cork and I remember going down and do my work experience there and to me it was like. Um, it was like just all these supermodel bulls, you know, from all these different breeds. And the, 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 we used to photograph them and put them in the catalogue. And then the farmers would get these catalogues and they would select which bulls had the best traits for, for them. And um, and yeah, it was just amazing. And one of the bulls was this bull called Galti Mercy. And he a terrifying looking animal, huge, big horns, but he was so placid. And Holstein Frisians have a reputation for being kind of a testy breed, especially the bulls. They're, they're a testy animal. But um, this bull was super quiet and I just I just fell in love. It just it's it's kind of cemented all this idea of genetics and breeding in my head, you know, which just made me all all the more interested, you know. Because, yeah, what you're saying there is in like you put them in a catalogue because like that's a huge part of of some aspect of farming is the kind of showing the animals and like they're washed and blow dried and uh, like, I mean, done up to to a certain extent and then kind of paraded around a ring. So it is kind of like modelling in a way. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, for this catalogue, I remember... I remember we had to photograph the bulls and then we had to photograph their daughters because like you said, Galti Mercy had all these, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of daughters around the national herd. And I remember being terrified of photographing the bulls, but the bulls were super quiet because they were used to being handled. The daughters were always like the ones that would kick you because uh, they, they weren't as used to being handled or photographed or their feet placed in particular positions. But I do remember that, like they used to put on like artificial tails onto the cow and they would put on makeup on the black bits to make the black bits darker. And yeah, it was this whole kind parades to make the animal look as, as good as possible you know yeah it's mad and before I kind of get into your PhD uh, research and experiences maybe maybe I'm wrong with this but did you ever get a sense you know the way because you were from Dublin so like were, were ever any of the kind of ags that you were around being like oh she you don't know what you talk about because as in like you you didn't grow up at a farm 100 hundred percent really I, I i yeah in many ways i feel like I, i'm always proving myself like even or trying to prove myself like even in 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 chagas i remember like some of the farm staff and they would kind of look at me when i'd go out and i'd jump into the wellies and i genuinely love i loved the part of my job where i could be in the field one day working with animals be covered in dung you know out in all weathers and and then the next day i could be in the lab doing dna extractions or something i just love that mix of things but definitely 
part of that was, you know, they'd hear the Dublin accent and and I, and I know very little about GAA. So I have a huge, I have a huge number of issues to overcome in terms of credibility. And um, and people will be like, what's this lad at? But like, I think most people, you know, they, they just see how, how you're into it and how you knew what you were talking about eventually. And then, and their, 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 their barriers would come down. But but a hundred percent, you know, there was there was loads of like crack along the way about what does this lad from Dublin know? Yeah, I tried to soften my accent, but it never really worked. Well, you see, that's funny because sometimes when I go home now to to ask me, they're saying, "Oh, you you've a Dublin twang on you." I'm like, "No, I don't." But I, I think if you spend an amount of time anywhere, you're con- you're going to pick up something from there. But uh, yeah, because I want to talk to you about your experience in Kenya, which sounds amazing. So you finished or you started a, a master's with David McHugh, and then that led into a PhD. Um, so was starting a PhD kind of a natural progression then for you? Not, not really. I don't, I, again, like I, I, I kind of like, I look back in amazement and I see the PhD students that are coming through today and I just see that the, I think they're so much more clued in and self-aware than I was. I really didn't have a clue. I was incredibly naive. I didn't really know you know what a PhD involved I didn't know anyone with a PhD I, I really my, the, the learning curve has just been so incredibly steep when I look back you know but but so I just started you know it really developed because of the relationship with David and I just liked the idea of working with him and learning more and you know and then he's this super enthusiastic and super smart individual as well so that kind of you know inspired me and um, and then I applied for this um, NUI bursary in agriculture and I, I, I was awarded it. And, you know, it was a lot of money at the time, I think 11,000. And I feel really old saying this, but but pre-euro, like punts, I think it was. And, um, and that enabled me to go to Michigan State University. I got some training in Oxford just for short courses. And then I got to um, I got to go to Africa and. And like David had secured some funding to to work on um, this disease called trypanosomiasis. And it was absolutely amazing because I've been watching kind of David Attenborough documentaries since I was knee high to a grasshopper, love wildlife, love animals. And then suddenly I was on the Serengeti in Africa. And I just can't tell you, like, even now my heart is going 90 thinking about it. Like it was just so amazing. And it's kind of a similar experience in a way to, to when I was working in Chagas, although that might sound a bit silly, but just the reality of the impact of the diseases that you're working on. You know, when you're in Africa and people see you're working on trypanosomiasis, which is called sleeping sickness, and it affects humans and cattle, you get this really kind of sense of responsibility that like, oh my God, this is such a big, big deal. And, and uh, you know, it, it makes you take your, your research really seriously because you're like, you know, you know, you're you're naive enough at the beginning to think I, I have the answer and my project's going to sort everything. And then, uh, but then you're meeting people and you're you're realizing the oh, the absolute devastation that these diseases cause. Like it be a TB in Ireland or trypanosomiasis in 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 Africa. And yeah, I just I just found the whole experience so joyful and and inspiring in so many ways. And we got to work with them. Um, these, these African cattle, these zebu cattle, they're called, which have the humps on the backs and the big dewlap on their front, and and then compare their immune responses to um to 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 taurine cattle, to the cattle we have in Ireland. Well, not not cattle we have in Ireland, but the the type of cattle that we have in Ireland. And and yeah, we were using these new technologies, and it's really funny. Again, it makes me feel really old, but we use these new technologies called microarrays. And at the time, we got data back on, uh, you know, thirteen hundred. I'll never forget this number: thirteen hundred ninety-one genes. And um, we were like, oh my god, how can we cope with this amount of data on thirteen hundred ninety-one genes? And and that then led to us talking to Clean O'Farrelly 
which we heard that there's this super enthusiastic immunologist down the road from UCD in Vincent's Hospital. So we should go down and talk to her and she'd help us interpret this data. And, and then we went down and then the relationship with myself and Kleena took off. And um, and yeah, and, and we're still, whatever it is, what year was that? Like that was, I was in Africa in 2003. So almost 20 years later, myself and Kleena are still going strong in terms of uh, research projects and collaborations and still talking about cows. <laughs> No, you did your postdoc then, McLean. But I just wanted to ask, how long did you spend in Africa? Um, I think it was maybe three or four months. So yeah, so we had to like, I mean, the logistics of that was incredible. Like genuinely, we should probably give ourselves a bit more credit because we had to fly all the reagents over to Kenya. So we're based in the International Livestock Research Institute. So we had to fly everything over to the research institute and get set up. And then we had to grow up the tetsi flies and infect the tetsi flies with trypanosomiasis and then allow, shave the flanks of the cattle, allow the tetsi fly to feed on the cattle, to infect them with trypanosomiasis, to profile their immune response over time, take the blood samples, separate their peripheral blood cells, separate the RNA from their peripheral blood cells, right. and then ship all that back to Ireland. And then the animals were treated and then they were allowed to go, go, go on about their daily lives or whatever. But um, but just the absolute logistics of of that whole experimental process was um, was great training, really. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing experience. Wow, because you know, any any time anyone has international experience, I'm so interested. But to like Kenya, just it's crazy and and very unusual. Well, I remember um, even even the, the you know the, the cultural aspects of it were just so incredible. Like driving around Nairobi, and um, you know, I found that at one time we had an African driver with us from the from the uh, and people would see us and they would kind of flock to us around the car and and you know. But then when I started driving myself. Um, we got a bit more confident when you were driving into Nairobi, but I just found that people were so interested and they had such respect when you mentioned Ngana, which was the, you know, the, the, the name for the sleeping sickness and you're working in Africa. People just had immense respect and, and interest in you. And I just found it, um, yeah, incredible. And I suppose, yeah, so you 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 met up with, with Clean O'Farley and then I suppose that sparked a, a working and personal, I suppose, relationship because you're, you're, you're great friends, I'm assuming now. Um, so talk to me about then that transition to postdoc in the ERC in, in Vincent's. Yeah, so I don't think you can work with Clina without being her friend, really, because um, it, it's kind of all encompassing. You know, she doesn't let you off lightly. She can spot when you're, um, if you're even remotely upset about something, she'll drill down it until suddenly you're 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 crying in in, in her company, exposing your your darkest secrets. But um, no, she's been an absolutely wonderful mentor, and um, them to studying tuberculosis in Irish cattle. So, and I'm still doing some of that work to this day with David McHugh. But really, so we had these data sets with the same 1391 genes and and we brought Kleena and other people as well like Joe Keane who's a a TB consultant in St. James's Hospital so I had this idea like you know the way that it's it's laughing at the naivety but I I remember saying like we're going to get all these experts together in TB and they're going to see like I've solved the issue like my the answer is here and this this data set has the answer to why why cattle get TB and um, but it was super interesting to think that you had these experts, you know, immunology experts, and I knew nothing. I don't, I don't, I don't really know anything at the time of, about immunology, and you know. And then I remember thinking that they were asking about their favorite genes, like what is interleukin eight doing, what is TNF doing, you know. And I was like, look, it's all this other stuff. It's all the stuff we don't know that's super interesting, but nobody was really interested in the other <laughs> stuff, you know. They were all trying to, be, you know, add stuff to the framework that they already had, you know, which makes sense, you know. But at the time, I was like, why does nobody care about X ones? seven to two f you know yeah and um 
And so anyway, I suppose, you know, what happened then afterwards was I finished my PhD. And even before I finished my PhD, Kleena had offered me a postdoc down in Vincent's. And it was during the boom time. So this would have been 2005. So I joined Kleena and she had funding for one year. And uh, we started off writing an Enterprise Ireland Proof of Commercialization grant and then two Department of Agriculture grants, one on Compilobacter in chickens and another one on uterine disease in cattle, which is a big problem. Lo and behold, we got all three grants. So suddenly we had, we had like 1.8 million euro. You know, we st- and that just led to so much because um, we were working on Compilobacter, which is a you know most common cause of food poisoning in the world and super interesting in the sense that chickens carry it in their intestine and they don't get uh, pathology. So it's regarded as a commensal bacteria in chickens. And so I went to the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization in Canada, where we did experimental infections using salmonella and using Compilobacter in chickens to try and study the immune response with a particular focus on these host defense peptides that we're interested in. And then similarly, you set the same techniques to find um, new host defense peptides in cattle. And so our second project then was, was, was investigating the role of those host defense peptides in uterine disease. But we employed vets and we had PhD students all based in, in Vincent's hospital, working on chicken infections, working on cow infections. So it was quite an eye-opening experience for people, um, you know, to kind of say, like, what kind of work is going on here, you know? But um, it makes sense, I suppose, in hindsight, that Kleena's interest was always in comparative immunology, you know, and comparing the immune system between different species. And um, we, we got to learn, you know, optimize or set up the techniques in one area and then apply them to different species, which I've kind of done since, you know. And I know then you spent a number of years in, in Chagas. So how, how was that? And why then did you make the move back to UCD? Yeah, so I, I, so I, wore, I was in Vincent's with Clean until 2007 when she was offered the position in Trinity. And then we moved there until 2009. And um, in 2009, then I applied for this job, set up my own research group in Chagas. And, and that was amazing. I was in Chagas for 11 years. And and that enabled me to, you know, again, get more funding and, and to extend the work that we were doing on uterine disease and on host defense peptides. And, and, and again, you, you know, you really like the African experience. You really get a, an appreciation for how important farming is. And in terms of protecting the food chain, in terms of protecting human health, you're, you're really at the coal face, you know, and, and you'd have like, um, you know, open days and public meetings for farmers. You'd see the real pain of farmers who have to like deal with these diseases day in day out but their herds are depopulated and they're losing money and and you know they get researchers like me who promise them that like we're going to make progress on this disease and they hear it again and again and there's a bit of kind of disease fatigue sets in and you know there's just you just really get a sense of the rawness and the responsibility of of working at that that that's and the and, and the, the true immense role that farmers have in terms of protecting protecting us and protecting our health so that really I re- that was really cemented in my consciousness in Chagas. You know, you weren't working at it in an abstract way. You were really meeting these farmers, you know. But the, so I, I think it's probably part, you know, I could talk about this all day, but it's it's it really, for me, in terms of bovine immunology, bovine immunology is a very small field, you know, and I sometimes envy when I go into Trinity and I see the interactions between the human immunology people and how, how incredibly... Um, interactive and supportive and exciting it is you know and you've all these experts and um, that you know the bovine immunology field is, is quite a lonely one in some respects like you've great people like clean say who are interested in comparative immunology and some some other collaborators that I've, I've developed since but you know really what we need to do in terms of bovine immunology and one health is we need to build capacity 
So that's what really interested me in going back to UCD is I want to, I want to try and in, make other animal science graduates enthusiastic about animal health and about understanding the science of animal health. So it's not just about, you know, I, I could stay in Chagas and I could have had maybe, you know, 10 or 12 PhD students and that would have been lovely. But I really want a kind of a broader impact than that. I want to go back and talk to undergraduate students and I want to make them understand why understanding immunology is important and how an analogy I always use is when we look across a, a herd of cattle in a field at the moment, we can identify, we can measure how much milk production they make, you know, what their milk production is. We can we can take scans of their carcass and we can work out how much meat they're producing. But we have no concept of what their immune system is doing. And if you, you know, if you have a poor immune system, well, then that animal is not going to produce milk. It's not going to produce meat. It's going to, you know, it could be a reservoir of infection. Uh, it's going to cost money. It's going to make us use anti more antibiotics. So, but yet we understand so little about the immune response in cattle. So I want to try and translate that to students and basically say, look, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole area here that we can develop. For, you know, strategically for, for both as opportunities for you as graduates, but as opportunities for UCD in terms of growing our research capacity as well and, and ultimately making progress on these diseases, you know, because I, I really believe that if we don't understand the basics and, um, you know, we can't, you know, Chagas is all about making a, 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 a an applied difference to farming, which is incredibly relevant and incredibly important. And we all want to get there. Mm. But but somebody has to do the basic work first and build the foundations of understanding, you know, what does a neutrophil do? What does a macrophage do in cows? And, you know, can we design better vaccines? You know, so some of the work I did, say, with Ed Lavelle in Trinity, for example, you understand the mechanisms which we can then use to design better vaccines for use in cattle. You know, so there's a, there's a lot of like a lot of what we know in immunology are, you know, I don't know what the percentage would be, but the vast majority of what we know in immunology, as you know, Megan, is is taken from either mouse models or from, you know, cancer cell lines or, or from humans as well. But we, the more we know about the immune response because of the, some of the work that we've done and obviously the work of others is that over the course of evolution, the immune system has been shaped in these different species and is quite different in, in some respects. And until we know those differences, uh, we're not going to be able to design better treatments and better vaccines and ultimately control infections where they start, which is usually like we know that, say, 60 percent of emerging infections originate in, in non-human animals. Mm. So, so, you know, the whole idea of One Health and zoonotic infection is controlling infection at source, where it begins. So I, I think there's just so much potential to tackle infections er, much earlier on. And we do that by expanding our knowledge base in bats, in badgers, in, in cattle, in sheep, in horses and whatever, you know. Yeah. And, you know, as you're talking there, obviously, this is so interesting in the backdrop of the current pandemic that we're in. Um, and I do think there will be a huge surge of people who want to understand immunology more and perhaps people who do understand a little bit more because of the last year. But like exactly what you said, there's a lot of people working on human immunology, but maybe animal immunology or bovine immunology is is lacking. So, yeah, it's amazing that there is kind of this um, network of you you guys in UCD to, I suppose, tackle that for the future. Yeah, and, and that's, I'm really hoping to grow that, you know, with the vet school and with other people in, in ag and other, and other universities over the coming years, you know. I think like what's been really great for me is, to, is the interface between Trinity and, and UCD. So on one hand, I get these 
amazing agriculture students who really understand, say, mastitis or TB. They, they've experienced this. They know the devastation that these diseases cause. They know how societally divisive TB is, et cetera, et cetera. So, well, they don't have the immunology skills, you know? And then I get, I, I get to lecture to some of the students on the master's in immunology in Trinity, and those people are coming from a human immunology background who are super scientists, but don't understand the role of agriculture or the importance of of, of um, differences in, in the genetics or differences in immune response pathways between different species. And then there's all those other challenges of working in models where you don't have the reagents like in cows and in sheep, that we don't have the reagents that people have in humans and in, in, in mice. So there's a huge number of challenges, but what, what's, been, what's been really interesting for me is that interface between the two, to be able to try and link the passion of agriculture with the expertise in immunology and, and, you know, and try and marry the two, because rather than reinvent all this expertise and try and develop it from scratch, you're, you're, you know, the best way to do it is to try and harness what expertise is there already. So, you know, through my work, I've had collaborations with Rachel McLaughlin and Trinity, who's a brilliant scientist and neutrophil biologist, um, and then with Ed Lavelle, and then with Keno Farrelly and, and, and others, you know, so you're harnessing that expertise that's really well developed and applying it to agricultural problems, which I just think is, is the best way to do it, you know. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, like, I think even just the, the idea of marrying the two is fascinating. And I'm actually surprised more people aren't aren't doing something like this. Um, I suppose just to get into some of the studies that and, and the research that your group Lee, have pioneered, the vitamin D study was interesting and um, vitamin D and calves. So talk to me about that, why you decided to look at this and what um, the outcomes were. Yeah, so I um, I was a real skeptic about vitamin D, right? Because I'm not a nutritionist. So I, I started to ask before the COVID pandemic, because actually as it happens, I just Googled yesterday for a grant application, how many vitamin D papers have been published since 2020. And 33,171 papers have been published with vitamin D in the title uh, since 2020, right? But three of them have been published in cattle. Right. Wow. So, so the amount of research in livestock species has, is, is absolutely dwarfed. Right. And um, so ever before COVID, I, I started asking about, well, you know, uh, there was a couple of papers. There were a couple of papers that looked at, say, polymorphisms in the vitamin D receptor gene and susceptibility to tuberculosis. And in the back of my head, I remember reading um stories about how medics used to take TB infected patients out into the sun and some of the patients would would get better their symptoms would improve and they, and they never understood why and it wasn't until much much later on that somebody hypothesized that it might be because vitamin D uh, levels were increasing in sunshine and and then I got thinking about um you know when cattle evolved in they evolved in a, in a in an environment which was much more intense sunshine than we have them in currently and then on top of that we've all these farming practices now where uh, we, we, we put jackets on our calves, for example, in the springtime to try and keep them warm, which obviously is a good thing and it keeps the animals, you know, from a welfare point of view, but their skin is less exposed to sunshine then, you know, and then other farming practices are starting to keep animals inside all the time uh, or for much longer periods of the year. So they're getting reduced exposure to the sun. So I started just to ask the question to nutritionists that I knew, you know, what's the story with vitamin D? Do we know is vitamin D an issue in cattle? And people said, oh, our animals are outside all the time. We supplement with vitamin D in our diets and um, it's really not going to be an issue. And I said, but has anyone actually measured it? So it turned out they hadn't. 
So I contacted a guy in the University of Florida called Corwin Nelson, and we we borrowed some of his bovine standards, and we set up an ELISA for measuring vitamin D, and then we sent samples away for for mass spec for for or for HPLC actually to to va- validate them. And what we showed was calves are really low in vitamin D in the springtime. So our as you know, Megan, our, our farming system is set up that the vast majority of our farm, our cows, our dairy cows, they, they calve in spring. So the cows are coming out of a winter where they've been indoors. They haven't been exposed to much sunshine. And we measure their vitamin D levels and the cows vitamin D levels are really low. And then they're giving birth to calves and the calves vitamin D levels are very low. So this is really interesting. Now, there's a lot of work to be done. This is a this is relatively because I haven't I haven't actually I only I've only submitted a grant application for the vitamin D work now uh, or last year for the first time and it's a resubmission this year. And um, so I haven't had much money to do vitamin D work yet, but we've 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 scraped some money together to do some analyses, and and that's shown us that the vitamin D levels are very low. But we don't know how low is too low. I mean the the levels in the springborn calves are very low, so we think that there is a real issue here. And um, so in 2020 despite the, you know, so the, the conversation around COVID and around vitamin D and, and the possible beneficial effects of vitamin D supplementation start to take off in the news and in the human literature. But we were in the background doing a supplementation trial in calves and we we supplemented calves using the maximum amount of vitamin D we could in the diet under EU regulations because the amount of vitamin D you can add is regulated in the EU to, to animal diets. So we went to the maximum levels allowed and we, we supplemented and we significantly increased the vitamin D. And we're finding all these interesting immune differences in animals that have supplemented vitamin D. So we think that it is possible to, to, to adjust the immune system um, using vitamin D. And what we also found is that the, the supplementation in the diet takes a long time. So calves might be five or six months of age, maybe maybe four or five months of age before uh, their vitamin D levels are above a threshold that we think is sufficient. Mm. Now that's open to debate because we don't know what sufficiency actually is. Most of the most of the thresholds for vitamin D were set by vets who were studying, say, clinical clinical issues in cattle years ago, way before we knew, for example, the impact vitamin D has on specific immune cells, right? So we don't really know how much vitamin D an animal actually needs, so we have to establish that. But, it, but, but there's this, this early life period in calves where they are deficient in vitamin D, and from all that literature that I've talked about, I'm fairly convinced that this low level of vitamin D is going to have important implications for their immune system development because we know in early life the immune system is being programmed. In cattle, they have you know they have this big rumen and the rumen is developing a microbiome and that microbiome, these these bacteria and fungi and viruses are being are establishing themselves right across the mucosal surfaces and vitamin D is known to affect the microbiome development. So I'm pretty pretty convinced, although we have to prove it that this low vitamin D is going to have negative consequences for that, that animal's immune system. But even, even if you think about the classical actions of vitamin D in terms of bone development, if the animal has very low bit of vitamin D when it's growing during the first six months of its life, the chances are that, that animal, those animals' bones are not going to develop very well. And, and you know that's going to have lifetime consequences because one of the biggest issues why we cull animals in the country is because they're lame. 
So lameness is a big issue in dairy cows. So possibly our theory anyway is, and again, we have to get money and we have to do this research. But again, our theory is that by increasing vitamin D in that early life period, we will be able to push the animal's immune system to develop better and also set them up on a trajectory which will enable them to longer and their lives. Kind of one of the things you, you touched on there was just TB, right? Tuberculosis. And I've actually had some researchers on this podcast speaking about TB in the context of human uh, health and disease, right? But I, I don't know whether people are aware in that, like, you know, cattle have to be tested for TB, I don't know, is it yearly or, or, or biannually? And I was actually speaking to my dad last night. So my dad's an uh, organic dairy farmer. And I was like, because I was looking up your research and I was like, there's a lot of links with TB. And I was like, dad, what's the story with TB testing? Because I know he always has to do it. And I know it's always stressful. And it's always yeah. like, oh, God, we have the test and, you know, blah, blah. So, you know, even just for, for you to kind of explain to people who, who aren't aware, like, you know, the kind of consequences of having a TB infection in your herd and I suppose how research that you're doing might alleviate that for like the the farmers and then also for the animals because you know not to be um uh what's the word cursed but like if an animal does have TB I think I'm right in saying and that that animal has to go essentially yeah yeah so I mean there's huge consequences so you know there's there's consequences psychologically which are you know only recently coming to the fore like we've kind of always known about them but we're kind of appreciating them more now is that there's a you know a psychological impact every farmer would get anxious about the annual TB test right then if there's an outbreak of TB that herd is locked up so there's a financial implication that animal can't, that those animals from those farms can't be sold and for a period of time until a number of retests are done and then if an animal is positive that animal is culled now the farmer is compensated to some degree then if you if you put a generation into breeding specific animals and you you know the animals inside out and you know their genetics and everything that's an absolutely huge blow you know and and so every farmer would be seriously anxious about tb and so, so we have about 15,000 reactors a year and that annual TB test costs us somewhere in the region of 80 million euro a year. You know, so it costs the taxpayer, you know. So so there's financial costs, there's there's emotional costs, psychological costs, welfare costs, and, and then those animals have to be have to be you know removed from the food chain because the the bacteria that causes tuberculosis is a zoonotic pathogen, which means it can move between species. So um very small numbers across the EU of human infections are caused by the bovine version of the bacteria but um but it does happen right so you know if we had a huge number of clinical cases of tuberculosis in the country well then the risk is that that infection would be passed more readily to humans and that's why it's such a risk with for example you see people talking about unpasteurized milk i mean pasteurization is there for a reason you know and it's it's very successfully controlled infection so we you know we want to keep that in place so TB is a big issue. Yeah. So there are people in 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 UCD, for example, um, Eamon Gormley, Stephen Gordon, Dave McHugh, who work on TB, and it's their and they're you know the resident TB experts. But I do some work on tuberculosis and uh, in collaboration with those guys. And you know, one of the issues where, where again it comes back to this issue of not really understanding the immune response. Like the reason we have fifteen or or, or the reason I think we have fifteen thousand reactors every year is that some TB positive animals are being missed. Right. So the test is not detecting them. So the test works on basically the activation of an immune response. So that immune response is called a delayed type hypersensitivity reaction, right? which is a bit complex. But all it means is that the farmers are, are well used to this. The vet will inject a 
goes into the neck of the cattle and they will wait a couple of days for an immune response to be generated. And if, if there's a big immune response, well, then that animal has been sensitized to tuberculosis bacteria before and, and is likely positive and will therefore be removed from the herd, right? But my theory, or, you know, the theory that I've been working on is that is that some of those animals can't mount an immune response because their immune response is compromised in some way. So it's back to maybe the vitamin D story or, or some other factors that the, the animals have an energic type of immune response, that their immune response is depressed or suppressed in some way. So if an animal is, if, for example, not getting the right nutrition or has been heavily stressed or has a secondary infection, well, then they might not be able to mount the appropriate immune response, which would enable the vet to diagnose them as being tuberculosis positive. So there's what's called a reservoir of infection being missed in the country, and that's preventing us from eradicating TB. So it's a big drive by the government and by researchers to try and eradicate TB by 2030. And obviously that would be a huge success, but it's incredibly difficult. Again, coming back to this issue that we don't understand enough about the immune response. So there's some really great work happening looking at, say, vaccinating badgers, for example. I'm not involved in this work, but other people are doing it. And, you know, that might be a way to, to control and prevent the spread of infection into cattle populations. But, you know, it's devastating for wildlife, for deer and, and so on. So it's, it's incredibly important that we get on top of this. But part of my contribution is understanding maybe the role of the immune system, the role of vitamin D. And there's another area of research that we're looking at, which is called epigenetics. So epigenetics is like a switch to, so if, 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 an, if a person is immunosuppressed, their immune system is switched off. So that's an epigenetic suppression. So we're looking at what epigenetic differences exist between cattle with TB and healthy cattle to see are, are some of these animals that develop TB, do they have, a, do, is that epigenetic switch flipped so that they're unable to mount an immune response? So again, you know, I've, my attitude towards this has matured a huge amount since I was an early PhD student to th thinking that those 1,391 genes are the answer to thinking, to thinking, look, this is a piece of the jigsaw that hasn't been addressed before. So we're adding a small bit of knowledge to that knowledge wall to hopefully help the problem. But again, there's a whole wealth of additional tuberculosis uh, type of uh, research going on across the world and with the, all with the idea of, you know, wh what are we missing? What are the knowledge gaps and how do we fill those gaps, you know? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm sure my dad will will be interested in that because he he actually was like, oh, I'm listening to that podcast because he's a bit of a fake fan. Sometimes he, he yeah. says he <laughs> listens, but, you know, he doesn't. Um, but <laughs> another kind of the last areas of research that I, that I am interested in, because I know I mentioned at the start, is your interest in fertility and, and reproductive biology. Um, so talk to me about, about that and I suppose why you're interested in that area. Yeah, so... Um... Again, I'm trying to remember where that actually started, but I, get, I, I think a lot of this work is guided by the science. So we, we discovered these novel host defense peptides, right? And these are like, these are really cool molecules because they're like a suite of natural antibiotics that we all have. So we produce these natural antibiotics. We're all looking for new antibiotics. Our body already makes them. Um, you know, if we could harness them and then use them to treat infection, that would not, wouldn't that be really cool? So we're trying to understand more about them. And it turns out that when we went looking for these host defense peptides, they're, they're, first of all, when you look at the genome of cattle, you see that the cattle have a huge extra number of these genes compared to humans or chickens or, or chimpanzees or whatever. And um, we're interested. Well, what, well, the first question you ask is why is that, right? So you would think, you would think, for example, that well, they're antimicrobial peptides, right? So they're involved in fighting infection. And where are there lots of bugs in cattle? Well, in the rumen, right? In their in their intestine, because their intestine is this big fermentation tank which helps break down grass. So they've lots of bacteria in there. 
However, when we actually took tissues from cattle and tried to identify where these genes are turned on, it turns out that they're all turned on in the reproductive tract, not in the rumen. So that tells you that actually, no, these genes have a role in the reproductive tract, in the uterus or in the fallopian tubes, or particularly in the epididymis of the bull. So what happens, and this is you know, what happens with research, and I, I wasn't really, I have to say, probably super excited about this because I was, as an immunologist at this stage, I wanted to kind of look at immune cells, but it turns out, no, it's the epithelial cells, which really are immune cells anyway, but people ignore them all the time. Hmm. They, they are producing these host defense peptides all along the reproductive tract. So, um, so that, then we got involved and, and interested in, well, you know, are they protecting the reproductive tract against infection? And that led us down the road to looking at uterine disease. So uterine disease is a big problem in dairy cows. And, um, and it, it all comes back to the control of inflammation. So we hear about inflammation and diseases, same as with COVID, um, that, that, that some cows are able to regulate their inflammation really well after they calve, whereas some cows really struggle to control their inflammation. And as a result, they develop disease. So we started looking at the role of these antimicrobial peptides in controlling disease. And that led us to, to understanding inflammation more, and, and one of the key, cool things that we've done, I suppose, is that we've, we've, we've taken cervical mucus from cows after they've calved and we're able to identify inflammatory markers in that fluid. So that would enable us potentially to, to, to diagnose disease earlier, you know, so that you're not waiting for the animal to become clinical. And then when she's clinical, the vet says, oh, oh there's something wrong here. And then we have to prescribe antibiotics. And then we're not sure whether it's a broad spectrum or a targeted antibiotic. And because the uterus is so big and there's such infection in there, the, lots of antibiotics are required, which is costly and which, you know, can contribute to the emergence of antimicrobial resistance. So, our whole emphasis is, well, if we can take a sample of mucus from these from the cows after they calve, well, then we can look at inflammatory markers in that fluid and we can say this animal is struggling to control inflammation. So we can potentially diagnose them earlier. And the equivalent then on the male side of things, we were able to identify that some, some bulls who have been used in artificial insemination, their, their sperm look completely normal, but, but they're, they're not fertile in the field and we don't know why. So we started looking at the role of these defences and we were able to identify that some of the animals have a genetic makeup that contributes to poor fertility in these genes. So these genes play a role in helping sperm navigate their way to fertilise the egg. So I suppose in, 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 a, in a nutshell, what's been really interesting is that like developing the field of bovine immunology, mm. bovine reproductive immunology is a smaller field again, you know, and, and you know, people tend to be in kind of a, um, camps, you know, that you're a reproductive person or you're a nutritionist or you're a physiologist or you're an immunologist, but really where the really cool science happens is when those people get together, you know, and, and that's what our science has done. It's essentially, we started out thinking this is going to be an immunology story, but it turns out that these genes are playing a reproductive story, but also an immunology story as well. So it's, I suppose the big phrase that captures everything for me is the interface, you know, that as you probably know, Megan is like immune genes tend to have multiple roles, you know, so, so these genes are playing a role in, in, in regulating sperm function, but also in controlling infection. Um, so, you know, the, if, if, for example, the, all the, the defences are bound to the surface of sperm, then only one sperm gets up to the egg and fertilises, but the rest of the sperm have all this defensin on them to prevent infection from ascending up the reproductive tract. Because obviously, obviously before the advent of antibiotics, we had to rely heavily on the, we only had the immune system. That was the only way we protected ourselves from infection. So um, I'm really interested in those kind of evolutionary 
those evolutionary stories, you know, how are animals, how, how are chickens preventing themselves from compilobacter infection? How are some cattle really good at regulating inflammation? And how are some animals more susceptible to disease? And when we can work out those mechanisms, we can then manipulate them to try and, because ultimately what we can do in cattle that you can't do in other species, or we can do in livestock, is that we can breed animals for disease resistance eventually. And um, so we can select animals with better, better disease resistance traits and um, and use those as parents of the next generation. So ultimately, over time, we will be able to develop cattle with better disease resistance. So that's that's the plan, the long term plan. Yeah. And what you're saying there about, you know, why are some uh, animals or, or um, chickens, for example, like more susceptible or it, it is kind of reminiscent of Professor Emma Teeling and her research in bats and, you know, how we studying these animals can have a huge impact then on human health and disease. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, you know, I mean, this is why I think farmers, you you know, it's back to the Chaga story and, and the farmer cold face is that, you know, farmers deserve massive, massive respect. And it comes back to our respect for our food, because, you know, ultimately farmers are the gatekeepers to uh, controlling the health of the food chain and then ultimately controlling f- f- uh, human health. And as Emma's work would show, you even go back a step before the cattle to say, um, you know, wild, wild animal populations. And again, there's huge interplay between agriculture and, and wildlife, as we know from the TV story. But, you know, as we put pressure on farmers to produce more at lower cost well then they have to spread out they have to become bigger and becoming bigger means that we need more land for agriculture which which increases the the pressure on that wildlife uh, livestock interface you know so um so yeah i mean definitely as i said earlier on that you know a huge proportion 60 percent or more of infectious diseases that infect humans you know originate from non-human animals so my whole ethos or, or the, that I try and promote is this idea of controlling infection at source. So that involves in bats, in badgers, in cows, wherever wherever the infection starts. And that's why, you know, we need to move away from a kind of a, a homocentric or a, a human-centric type, type of perspective and, and branch out and say, well, look, you know, we're all part of this ecosystem. So we need to understand where are these viruses originating? Why are animals, you know, um, incubation units for infection? Because one of the, the big challenge, of course, is how do we feed a planet of 9 billion people in 2050? You know, so how do we do that and yet expand agriculture in a sustainable way with respect for biodiversity and respect for wildlife? And so, so that knowledge of those animal systems um, is critically important in order to support the whole ecosystem. No, definitely. And, you know, I I said it to you earlier that like, I was just fascinated by looking at your website last night because you have so many different aspects of animal health, one health, like animal science, like why it's important. And I mean, I would definitely recommend anyone to who was interested to go on and because you had a page where it was like your nine or 10 kind of research interests, but it wasn't just a line. It was like why this is important. And like, I'm obviously extremely passionate about science communication. And I think that in itself is like such a clear um, example of science communication, because if you can't explain the impact of your research to and break it down, you know, really, you're there's no point, I think, because you need to be able to explain to the public. Otherwise, people won't be invested. 100 percent. Like at the end of the day, I'm hoping when I look back on my career that I've just inspired a few people in animal science to pursue careers and, and you know, to see the broader relevance of research, but then to, to pursue and, and contribute to this kind of um, 
this knowledge generation and understanding more. So I just think that's a, a real route to impact, you know, and also, as you say, then to we need an informed public. We need farmers to understand that we're doing our best from an infection point of view. Um, you know, that that each piece of the jigsaw is a, is a step in the right direction. And all, although it's frustrating and slow, we're moving in the right direction. And, and then for, you know, like, like COVID, it's so important. And I hope you're right, Megan, in what you said, that we will have a more engaged people and more interested in immunology because, mm. you know, at the end of the day, whether we're using CRISPR technology or whatever we're doing, we need the public on board. We need them to understand why we're doing what we're doing. So I one of, one of the things I was most delighted with was I brought, I worked with the Trinity Access Programme and I brought inner city kids out to Chagas and um, they all step off the bus and they're, you know, uh, where are we? And we're on this farm and I bring them down the farm and I let them interact with the calves. And then I brought in some chickens because I breed some rare breed chickens myself. And I brought the chickens in to, to show the kids and they start off screaming as in like, oh, my God, get me out of here to to want everyone queuing up to pet the chickens, you know. And it's such a transformative experience, that connection with animals and then the, the, the linkages to where your food comes from. So I just think that that communication, that translation of, of information and that engagement, because one of the best things I think about science is it promotes engagement. You know, you can't you can't do science superficially, really, and you can't be successful at it by doing it superficially. You have to really engage. It forces you to engage. So I love that uh, kind of starting them young and then they, they realize, God, you know, this is where, you know, I'd ask them, for example, how much milk do they think a cow produces a day or um, how many eggs do they think a hen produces a year? And, you know, just to get them thinking about animal systems and where their food comes from. And even if they never step for step on a farm, it's really that appreciation for food, you know, and, and the connection between rural and urban um, lifestyles. That's so important, you know. Yeah, I suppose kind of that leads me into one of my last few questions in that, you know, what drives this passion for what you do and what do you love the most about academia? But then also what kind of frustrates you or what, what stresses you out about the job too? I think I think the, the, the love of academia is 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 curiosity. Like I just, I just, I don't know if I'd be as passionate about human immunology. Do you know what I mean? I, what I love about what I do is because everything is novel and like discovering new genes. It's just so incredible that nobody's ever known about this gene before and no one's ever worked on this before. And, you know, it's just I, like one of the things I miss from being a graduate student, I suppose, is generating my own data. And I do want to go back into the lab. It's part of my plan in UCD is to go back into the lab and generate data because that, that excitement, like no one's ever, ever known this before. It's just amazing. And um, and really the privilege, the absolute privilege of going into work every day and working on your own ideas. I mean, you know, very few people get to do that. Like that, that's, we, we can't lose sight of that despite the frustrations. And there are a lot of frustrations. I mean, I've moved from Chagas to UCD in the last year during the pandemic, and it's been immensely stressful, moving labs, moving people, re-registering them. We had an outbreak of COVID. Unfortunately, one of my students lost her, her dad to COVID. So it's, it's been, it's been immensely stressful on everyone. And, um, and, but I have to remember that in, in terms of my stresses specifically, um, they're in the halfpenny place compared to people who have lost jobs and who have like immense pressures of, of you know raising families from home and and without incomes and stuff like that. So, but I suppose in, in, you're asking me really, I suppose in terms of academia in general, what what I what I what I like, I suppose, is that people are becoming more realistic in their appraisal of of success. I think that's what I really like recently. Like when you read on Twitter that people are more open to admitting their failings. Like I love going to a scientific talk where people like Kleena or Kingston or Luke stand up and they say, you know, here's my story, warts and all. 
You know, it's not it's not just all glam and glitter. It's not like I, I woke up and I'm brilliant and this led me to my nature paper. <laughs> you know, it's all it's a story of truth. And it's a story of like, you know, what I'm trying to do with my PhD students and, and my undergraduate students is to help them appreciate um, the process and appreciate that failure is part of that process. And we all fail and we all make mistakes and that's OK. And you learn from it and you grow from it. And ultimately, at the end of the day, what is an expert? An expert is somebody who has experience and that experience comes from failure. You know, so I've, I've struggled with this a bit myself. I, you know, you're trying to cut yourself some slack and say, look, everyone goes wrong and goes off on a tangent and then they come back and, and that's okay. And, you know, and so that kind of honesty is, is lovely to see now, because as I said to you, our community is small and the frustrations can be tough, you know, on your own. And, you know, and of course, like everyone expects the PI to have the answer you know what I mean so people come to students come to me all worried and stressed and like expecting and thinking I'm I'm the oracle and of course I don't and then I run to clean and ask me <laughs> but um that kind yeah, of no. that kind of also highlights, you know, the importance of mentors um, and kind of people who encourage you and I suppose give you advice, no matter what the stage. Because I actually went to a postdoc mentoring session um, this week and it was uh, Kleena and Jacinta O'Sullivan. And they were kind of saying that, like, as in, it doesn't matter what stage you are, you still need to have someone there that you can bounce ideas off and um, I suppose yes, chat to. It's so important, like even even just the venting process, right? So step one is just venting. It's just like, please just listen to me and and reassure me that I'm not going insane. And then and then maybe I'll offer advice. But you know, the good thing about mentors is is that I suppose that they know when not to offer advice and they leap. You know, one of the really good things about Keena is she won't always tell you the answer. Like you know, she she might lead you towards a solution, or she might not know the answer. You know what I mean? So, but, but part of it is that reassurance and and you know, we've all been through this and it's okay and uh, you know you'll get there and and um, you know and giving yourself time to work out the answer and and I think that's one of the challenges that PhD students have or you know you, if you come in from a really successful uh, trajectory in life where everything's worked really well for you and you've got 600 odd points in the leave insert or whatever and you know suddenly then stuff doesn't work and suddenly you're not you know things are failing in the lab and you know, it's your first time in your life confronting kind of failure and there's no there's no right answer. There's no literally you can look this up or Google this and this is what you do next. There's no. So you have to sit with that discomfort, you know, and you have to grow and you have to learn from it and you have to like try and function. And, you know, it's such an important part of the learning process, but it's tough. I mean, I think we genuinely expect an awful lot of academics to be the person who who comes up with the idea. The process is so slow, drives me mad. You know, from, you know, my vitamin D idea, for example, I would love to get a, a kind of couple of million euro, get studies up and running, buy in calves, supplement them with vitamin D, get, you know, lovely science out. But, you know, you're trying to convince people that it's relevant. You're trying to build a team and network. You apply for the money, you get knocked back, you get the money eventually, you start re- getting a team together. You have the setbacks with the research not going the way you want it. Then you have to prove the idea. Oh my God, it just takes so long. So yeah, you do you do need a good supportive network along the way to keep you uh, fired up, you know. Yeah, definitely. Well, Kieran, my final question for you is: if you weren't an animal scientist, or if you weren't uh, in the job you are in now, where do you think your life would have ended up, or what other career do you think you might have had? I think I think looking back now, I think I'd like to be a psychologist. Okay, I was not expecting that. 
Yeah, yeah. I think I've learned that the key to an awful lot of, of what we do is, is behavior and it's thought processes and problem solving and dealing with failure and, you know, what is success to me versus what is success to you. And I just, I spend a lot of time thinking about people and this whole idea of um kind of like the myers-briggs personality type indicator stuff you know like you we've all had different phd students and some of them respond to kind of tough love and some of them respond to being led gently and whatever like so what makes people tick and and how to encourage them and how to make them grow and how to essentially feed your own growth and keep yourself on the on the straight and narrow so all that kind of psychological stuff um keeps me keeps me interested yeah Oh, I thought you were going to say you'd be a, a farmer up the side of the Galti Mountains or something. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think um, a part of helping me sleep at night, I think about what would I do if I won the lotto? And, and my, my, I always in my head go to buying a, a, a herd of red Frisian cattle or, or Ayrshire cattle. I love the red and white cattle and whatever. So I am um, in the back of my head. That's that's yeah. If I won the lotto. That's where I'd go. Okay. Well, listen, Kieran, it's been absolutely eye-opening and fantastic and I've learned so much. Um, And I mean, you have the honour of being uh, a podcast that my dad, before he even heard it, said he would listen to it. So um, thank you so much for coming on and chatting to me today. It's been a pleasure, Megan. So hi to your dad and thanks very much. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, who are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts.